Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. Great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. (laughs) Why are you excited? I'm excited because today we're watching House of Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) The Avengers of the Universal Horror Movies. Yeah, basically... Uh, this is from 1944, and it is the first monster rally movie, and that's a term that you will see used to describe this movie, as well as the other, like, multi-monster universal movies, invariably. You will see this term everywhere. Really? Because I hadn't heard it until today. You will see it, like, on the Wikipedia articles, you'll see it when it's discussed in, like, books and magazines, and I was trying to figure out where this term came from. Uh, Was it something that was from, like, the marketing for these Mm -hmm. movies originally, Mm -hmm. right? And um, I was assisted in this search by Chris Freeberg, one of our patrons. Oh, nice. uh, Thanks, Chris. Who pointed me towards the fact that um, the first, like, 60 issues, I think, of Famous Monsters of Filmland is on the Internet Archive. Famous Monsters of Filmland, as a magazine, started in the late 50s and kind of grew the original fan community around these movies that sprung up because in the late 50s, Screen Gems, which was Columbia Pictures' TV department, bought like 500 or so of um, Universal Pictures' like back catalog. And then they sold Universal's back catalog along with Columbia's back catalog to television stations in these themed packages. Yeah. And one of these themed packages was called Shock Theater. And it was basically just all of these old horror movies that we've been watching on this show from Universal and Columbia. And they started playing late night on local TV. And the standard thing you would do because... These movies varied widely in length from, you know, 60 minutes to 99 minutes. You had to have, you know, a a stable programming block, right? So you'd have like a two-hour programming block. Well, okay, you're going to have some ads in there, but you can't just have more ads for the shorter ones. So thus the, like, TV horror host gimmick was born, and like every local station that showed shock theater had like a different local horror host hosting these movies and doing segments and because these movies started getting seen you started getting fandom around them you started getting magazines like famous monsters of Filmland, and that's where this term monster rally movie originates is with like that early fan community and that's kind of why it's become just so like etched in as a thing even though it's not like It doesn't originate with this film. Right. It's a ubiquitous descriptor, but doesn't actually originate with the marketing here. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, And it's it's sort of, you know, up for debate whether it also applies to Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, uh, which was a crossover, but it's only two monsters. So is that a full rally? I don't know. How do you define a rally? Like, is that, like... Well, and what's weird is, like, as a term to describe a bunch of movies... 
it only really describes like three movies if you're considering the uh, like original universal movies and one of those is a comedy um but i guess movies like monster squad count for this destroy all monsters um i think it's more specifically like halloween monsters instead of kaiju monsters but like um monster party from the 1960s the song monster mash I suppose describes this genre, like <laughs> like this Listen, movie. That's a mash. That's not a valley. Without this movie, there wouldn't be the song Monster Mash. This is what that is. I think the most recent monster rally you can probably point to is Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. But uh, who knows? Maybe the Universal Studios Dark Universe will get on its feet one of these days, and we'll have another monster rally. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So, since this is sort of the coming together of all of the Universal franchises into the Monster Avengers, um, (laughs) let's take a look back at, I don't know, the history of Universal horror monsters. I got some stats for you. Mm. So, it has been 14 years since... The first Dracula. Okay, yes. Uh, you know, put yourself in, like, 1944 House of Frankenstein time. Right. 14 years since Dracula. This will be the 10th film featuring these universal monsters. The ones that are featured in this movie. Yes. Which, for the record, are... Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, um, and Wolfman. Mm-hmm. And, like, the idea of a mad scientist... You know, he's not like... There isn't a the mad scientist. Yeah, yeah. but that that figure mm-hmm. pops in here. For sure. So I feel like that's important to recognize. Fair. Um, and as far as scream scene goes, we are just over 100 episodes since the first Dracula. Oh, really? Yeah, Dracula was episode 24, and this is episode 125. Okay, cool. Yeah, so some things just kind of lining up mm-hmm. kind of neatly. So this would be the, like, what, sixth Frankenstein movie? The third Wolfman mm-hmm. and the fourth Dracula. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so let me take you back. So Dracula 1931 kind of kicks off the horror craze in Hollywood. Right. Um, if you want to hear more about that, episode 24. And Dracula is currently ranked 12 on the list. Okay, respectable. Yeah. Frankenstein... Comes out that same year, wants to cash in on horror, um, adapting classic works of literature, and if you want to hear more, episode 26, currently ranked number 10. Okay. So a couple spots higher, but still pretty high up. There's uh, like 120 films on the list. Yeah. Um, Then we have a little bit of a break from Universal uh, in terms of its monster movies, Because the Hollywood production code comes in, and the first horror film to kind of deal with the code is 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. So that's episode 48, if you want to take a listen. Ranked number 11. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bride had to really deal with the fact that, up until now, the production code had, you know, kind of been a series of guidelines, but now it's really being enforced. And James Whale, who directed it, found a way to make a very good horror movie, have it feature queer themes, still have it be 
a commercial success. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Universal could not keep that success, uh, as 1936's Dracula's Daughter uh, kind of killed horror yeah. for a little bit. Um, Dracula's Daughter uh, is episode 62, if you want to take a listen, and it's ranked number 53. <laughs> okay, so that's a, that's a sort of precipitous fall. Yeah, a bit of a nosedive. Um, for some perspective, the midway point on the list is number 60. Okay. So, not it, it's not, like, below the halfway point, but going from, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, number 11 to number 53, it's, it's quite a fall. Yeah. So, as I said, horror kind of died out for a bit, both with the enforcement of the code, but also just a overall moving away from horror as a genre across a lot of film industries until the renaissance of horror in 1939 with Son of Frankenstein, episode 66, uh, and it's currently ranked number nine. Right. Yes, uh, which makes it the highest ranking Frankenstein movie, but also the highest ranking Universal Monster movie. I mean... Of the ones that are pertinent to House of Frankenstein. Yes, yes. Because um, I think Invisible Man is ranked higher. But is he truly a monster? Yes, Sarah. <laughs> a few years later, 1941, comes The Wolfman. Um, episode 88, currently ranked number 15. So not as high as these earlier Universal horror movies, but we gave a lot of credit to Wolfman with how it um, brought in themes addressing Nazis, Mm -hmm. basically. It didn't start this trend, but as far as the, like, return of horror to Hollywood, Wolfman, I think, marks a point where you can see people realizing that socially conscious horror does really well. Mm. Because I think you can put Wolfman alongside some of, like, Val Luton's films to show, like, you know, these are, like, really good pieces of horror really good classics that are talking about social issues. And Wolfman also really emphasized the tragic monster figure that has kind of been, in one way or another, Universal's go-to kind of the whole way through. Definitely. Yeah, we saw the first iteration of the tragic monster with with Karloff's creature in the original Frankenstein. But as I, I'll go into later, that the creature's kind of morphed away from that, yes, and Cheney's Wolfman solidifies it. Yeah, for sure. Keeping with the trend of Frankensteins, uh, in 1942, we had Ghost of Frankenstein, uh, episode 90, and it's ranked number 58. So the lowest ranking film of creatures pertinent to House of Frankenstein. Gotcha. The spectrum here is from number 9 to number 58? Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> So a good half of the list. Right, yeah. I, I mean, the upper half, so that's something. Yeah, you know, gotta gotta keep with something. Now, Ghost of Frankenstein, clearly because of how low it is on the list, isn't the best film, but I think it is significant in the Frankenstein franchise mm-hmm. in how um, the creature gets represented um, and, like, the, the popular culture idea of who the creature is, really seems to come from Ghost of Frankenstein over Mm -hmm. any other film. But I'll go into more detail about that in a minute. Yeah. But the following year, uh, to kind of 
I don't know, my theory is people were like, oh wow, Ghost of Frankenstein was bad, Wolfman was great, how do we bring some prestige back to Frankenstein? I know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in 1943. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's episode 102 if you want to take a listen. Uh, ranked number 36? Yeah. So a little, like, definitely a step up from the last Universal flick, but uh, not in the teens, you know? Yeah, it's middle of the road. And what's strange about Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is that despite it being a team-up movie, or at the very least like a crossover movie, it really feels more like a sequel to Wolfman than anything to do with the Frankenstein franchise. Mm -hmm. And then later that year, they thought, hey, we haven't done a vampire movie in a while. Here's Son of Dracula in 1943, episode 109... Uh, ranked number 30. Okay, yeah. Yeah. This introduces Alucard to uh, the mythos of Dracula. So that those are the films that have kind of brought us to House of Frankenstein in 1944. Now, we kind of mentioned The Count earlier, but that's three Dracula movies, five Frankenstein movies, and two Wolfman movies. Right, yes. Um, as far as how Dracula's been depicted in these... Uh, in the 1931 Dracula, we of course have Bela Lugosi. This was introduced in his Broadway performance, but especially in this film performance. Um, Lugosi brings that sex appeal to Dracula. Yeah. Um, and the sex appeal to vampires in general. Up until this point, uh, they've been more about plagues and being rat-like. Yeah, they were gross more vermin-y. monstrous. Yeah, definitely more monstrous. And I think the other thing about Lugosi's bringing the sex appeal in is it's very specifically this kind of like... Heterosexual sex appeal. Exotic foreign sex appeal was that sort of too. the other thing I was going to say was, you know, it's it's very much couched in his accent and his being kind of this mysterious figure from someplace else. Yeah. Dracula's daughter kind of continues a little bit of that, like, foreign sex appeal, but they keep the overall sex appeal with Gloria Holden playing Maria Zaleska, but we see her preying on young women, which introduces a queer subtext Mm -hmm. to Dracula's daughter, Um, which is kind of the only significant thing about Dracula's daughter. Otherwise, it ends up being kind of a greatest hits of the first Dracula movie. And the first Dracula movie has really been the only movie where we actually have had Count Dracula. Correct. Because he gets staked at the end of that movie, and then his daughter, like, burns his body. Yeah. Oh, the other reason why Dracula's daughter is important is it introduces the I-don't-want-to-be-a-vampire kind of yeah idea. Um, because Gloria Holden, Maria Zaleska, uh, she finds Dracula's body and burns it in an attempt to cure herself of vampirism. It doesn't work, but the tragic nature yes. of being an immortal being mm-hmm. is explored a little bit. It's also not clear if she is Dracula's daughter by like blood or by being sired. Right, by, by blood or by blood. Um, yeah, yeah. 
by like reproduction, like traditional reproduction. Yeah, is she or... is she is she the daughter of um you know the uh, man or Vlad... the vampire? Yeah, is she the daughter of Vlad Zepish or is she someone who Dracula bit and turned into a vampire? Yeah, and they continue that like ambiguous family lineage uh, with son of Dracula. Um, with Lon Chaney playing Count Alucard. Also, maybe Count Dracula? Right. It's not very explicit whether Alucard is his name or if that's a uh, pseudonym he's going, a very poor pseudonym, (laughs) that he's going under um, to get to the United States. Yeah, and even though they call him Count Dracula, it is said that, like, he is Dracula's son, and... Being called Dracula doesn't preclude him from being a different person than Count Dracula if, like, Dracula is the, like, noble title passed down because you're a count, right? Yeah. So, like, (laughs) if you are the son of Count Dracula, you are still Count Dracula, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, But we'll call him Alucard to be less confusing, I guess. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, with son of Dracula being... Like, ranked number 30. Part of why it did so well compared to Dracula's daughter is, at least for me, kind of trying to do its own thing. It taps into this Southern American gothic genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of doesn't so much feature like or follow Alucard, but rather follows the character Kay, played by Louise Albritton, who is manipulating Alucard so she can become a vampire, live forever, and um, be queen of the swamp, basically. Yeah. Which is just an interesting idea, that, like, this immortal being can be manipulated by a mortal, of all people. Well, I think it's because, also, Lon Chaney's Alucard is a very different kind of um, performance than, like, how Lugosi did Dracula. I mean, it's rooted in some of the same ideas, but... He's not doing the same shtick, really. Yeah. And he does do pretty well. But I would say that, like, his Dracula isn't the same kind of, like, suave, sexy character. Uh, He's more like... I don't know. How would you describe him, Sarah? Well, it's tough, because the persona of Lon Chaney is so informed by Wolfman being a tragic, everyday Joe Mm -hmm. that seeing him try to be... Um, a suave vampire. Aristocrat. Yeah, an aristocrat. Works until he opens his mouth. Right. He can do the look of an aristocrat, but as soon as he he performs, Mm -hmm. he's just an everyday guy. Yeah. Speaking of Lon Chaney, it's interesting that um, he played the creature in Ghost of Frankenstein and was the first person to play the creature after Boris Karloff. Karloff plays the creature uh, in the original, the OG Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein. What's interesting as like the character changes in those first three films is um, in the first Frankenstein, he's much more of a, a childlike kind of character. Yes. He doesn't speak. Yes. And that really ties into the themes of family abuse that we noted in that film. And parenthood. And parenthood, for sure. Um, in Bride of Frankenstein, he gains the ability to speak. Now, both we and Karloff did not like that he got to speak. But at the very least, um, it expanded the idea of who this creature is um, and gave him a, 
what felt like a bit more agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so he at can, the end, he can demand things. Yeah, and at the end, when he's like, "We belong dead," and then blows up the castle, it has more impact than being a uh, a voiceless monster. And with um, the fact that in that movie he like smokes a cigar and drinks wine and demands a mate. It, he feels a little less childlike, maybe more like teen Frankenstein's monster. Oh, definitely. A teen puberty creature. Mm-hmm. Then in Son of Frankenstein, um, he's made mute again, and the creature ends up just kind of following orders. Yes. Um, now that really peeved Karloff to the point where he chose not to return in Ghost, but it did give Bela Lugosi a chance to play the really unique role of Igor mm-hmm. in Son of Frankenstein. Um, now, I, I should just mention that Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein fully adapt, albeit not completely accurately, uh, fully adapt the original novel. Mm-hmm. So Son of Frankenstein is the first, like, wholly original addition to this franchise. And it's interesting how, like, they continued the ideas of lineage with Basil Rathbone's character Wolf von Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But I guess as far as the how the creature has been portrayed, um, it's in Son of Frankenstein where his agency is kind of cut off at the knees and he's just following Igor's orders. And we see this kind of continue into Ghost of Frankenstein. Lon Chaney's playing the creature. Um, Bela Lugosi returns as Igor. And we have some mad scientists come in. So Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein is played by Cedric Hardwick. He's just doing the Frankenstein shtick, whatever, and we get the very interesting, in my opinion, interesting addition to the franchise here with Lionel Atwell's Dr. Theodore Bomer, who is interesting to me because Frankenstein as the franchise is the one that brings in the mad scientist trope a bit with Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Um, And in all of the movies up to this point with Colin Clive and Basil Rathbone, it's almost been like a family curse that they have to do something with this creature. Like, they have to either prove themselves right, um, prove themselves like a god. Yeah, uh, make up for the family's past mistakes. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. But then with Dr. Bomer, who is not related, clearly, um, he is the franchise's first truly mad scientist who takes Igor's brain, puts it in the creature, Mm -hmm. um, so that Igor, as the creature, can be, like, this super uber-man. Yes. Yeah, he's he's an uber-mensch. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And to, like, control Germany, quote-unquote Germany. Right. Um. (laughs) Because the creature, it's sort of implied by this point, is, like, mentally deficient from, like, both having the Abby Normal brain from the original. Yeah. And then, like, getting blown up at the end of Bride of Frankenstein, getting blown up at the end of Son of Frankenstein, uh, you know, he's he's not so great. Whereas Igor has the, like, powerful brain, but his body's all twisted and broken. So you're, you're combining those two to create this ultimate being. Now, because Igor's blood type doesn't match that of the creatures, right. when his brain... This diabolical brain gets put into the creature. Um, he goes blind. Right. Don't know about the science of any of this, but this is what happens. Yeah. So in the last few minutes of 
Ghost of Frankenstein, the creature is walking around with his arms outstretched because he can't see. Yes, which establishes that classic pop culture image of the creature. Yeah, and that image gets further solidified in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman when um, Bela Lugosi is actually playing the creature, which would make sense with the idea of, like, he's playing Igor's brain in the creature. Right. So, you know, you hear Igor's voice, but in the actual release of the film, they cut out all of his dialogue. Which makes the creature mute again. Exactly. And also further disconnects the continuity of, like, why is it Bela Lugosi? Mm -hmm. Why is he walking with his arms outstretched? Yeah. Like, so none of that established continuity makes it into Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Right. It, like, the, the clues and the signs are there if you're looking for them, but the explicit mentions are taken out. Yeah. Now, what does kind of continue with the franchise is the idea of, like, a, a scientist going mad with wanting to experiment with the creature, and we see that with Dr. Mannering, played by Patrick Knowles. And as I said, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman really is more of a Wolfman sequel. Part of that is the fact that they disconnect the Frankenstein aspects from the rest of the franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also the film that follows up 1941's The Wolfman. Right. So as we kind of said, like, Frankenstein's monster first establishes the tragic creature, the tragic monster. But that kind of goes away after 1931. That theme reemerges in 1941's Lon Chaney uh, as the Wolfman, um, this tragic everyday guy who gets cursed to turn into a wolf, a wolfman, when the autumn moon is bright. Mm-hmm. Um, that autumn moon part gets retconned to be just any full moon um, in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And it's kind of interesting to think about these two films as part of the Wolfman franchise. Um, The Wolfman establishes tragic everyday guy. Yes. How sad. Yeah. But Frankenstein meets the Wolfman establishes, I need to find a cure. Won't you help me? Please, don't you understand? I'm going to turn. No, really, I'm not crazy. Listen to me. Yeah, it, it makes him into kind of a Bruce Banner figure of this, like, guy who wanders from place to place. Because in the original Wolfman, we're just in this one setting in Wales, and he gets cursed, and it's bad, but then, like, everything gets resolved, presumably, when we have this tragic ending of his father beating him to death with this silver cane. The implication in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is that Lon Chaney's not just a werewolf, he also is undead? Because the full (laughs) moon doesn't just turn him into a werewolf, it also literally brings him back to life several years later and he like walks out of his crypt alive again as a wolf but now he's like wandering the countryside going from town to town place to place and like he can't remember what he does when he's you know a wolf man or whatever and he's yeah he needs this cure because the thing that they establish in Frankenstein meets the wolf man is now this idea that like he can't die so he can't use suicide as a way to get out of his tragedy, so he needs a cure. Yeah. So that's where we've come. Yeah. 14 years ago. Yeah. So it's now 1944. How did House of Frankenstein in the real world come to happen? Right. So, you know, if we think about the, like, interconnected continuity of these movies, 
you know, obviously you run a lot into the problem that we call like the what year is it problem, especially with how many of these end up being kind of set in Germany in movies that are in the 1940s, um, which like leads to like a lot of like not using the word Germany a lot, um, even though that's where they should be. Like one thing that's really always interesting to me is trying to like chart the course of where are we geologically. The Frankenstein movies kind of bounce between these two locations. There's Ingolstadt, which also might just be called Frankenstein, which (laughs) is the village that, like, Frankenstein, the family, was, like, the lords of. And that's where we are in the original Frankenstein, and that's where we are in Bride of Frankenstein. And there's this, like, conflation that happens between... In the original Frankenstein, Frankenstein has his um, workshop, his laboratory, in, like, an abandoned lighthouse. And then, like, Castle Frankenstein is a different place. And then in Bride of Frankenstein, those two things kind of move together location-wise. Yeah, and it's like, like the lab is out back. Right, yeah, like the garage or whatever. <laughs> um, well, in, in Bride of Frankenstein, the lab, the tower, is blown up. Mm-hmm. Son of Frankenstein, it's in ruins, but um, there are these sulfur pits under it that, like, explode and the creature gets trapped in. In Ghost of Frankenstein, the creature makes it out of those, and the town decides to demolish the castle. And then Igor and the creature escape to this other village called Viseria, where the other Son of Frankenstein lives. And that's where, like, that movie happens. In Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Lawrence Talbot... Lon Chaney's Wolfman, goes to Viseria from Wales in the 40s during World War II, don't ask questions, (laughs) to find Frankenstein. And, you know, he's already dead, so they need, like, Frankenstein's notes. So they travel to the ruins of Castle Frankenstein to get those notes of Dr. Frankenstein's. And at the climax of that film... The creature, Frankenstein's creature, and the wolfman battle each other in the ruins of Castle Frankenstein, and then the town, like, blows up the dam so that all the ruins get washed away by the river. So we've, like, blown up or destroyed this castle, like, several times by now. Yeah. No matter how good the foundation is, it's gone. Yeah. Um, and we've had, like, several different sets of, like, the last notes of Dr. Frankenstein that people have found in, like, several different hiding places. <laughs> His secretary got a lot of work. hmm So the relative success of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman in 1943, which was the first cinematic crossover, led the producers at Universal to the belief that teaming up the monsters was a money-making strategy. You could have, you know, less movies, more monsters... So it's like you convince the audience they're getting, like, a bargain. And then, yeah. Um, so early drafts of House of Frankenstein actually experimented with including more monsters. Um, so in addition to the creature, the Wolfman, and Dracula, there was also drafts where they were going to have Karis the Mummy, um, Paula Dupree, the Ape Woman, oh my God. Ted Allison, the Mad Ghoul, oh. and some version of the Invisible Man. They would have to decide which Invisible Man continuity they were going to go with. And they these early drafts were under working titles that emphasized the multi-monster approach. Titles like Chamber of Horrors, The Devil's Brood, and Destiny. Oh, okay. That one seems out of nowhere, but yep. okay. Uh, but the eventual budget for the film of 
$354,000, which, to be fair, was higher than films like Wolfman, uh, reduced the roster down to Mad Scientist, Lawrence Talbot the Wolfman, Hunchback Assistant, Count Dracula, and Frankenstein's Monster. Mm -hmm. The Hunchback Assistant comes from the 31 Frankenstein Mm -hmm. with Dwight Fry's Fritz. Yes. Um, But then also, in terms of, like pop culture image mm-hmm. is very heavily influenced by Igor, Billy Lugosi's Igor. Right. And the version we get in this film also steals elements from Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. With this kind of finalized roster, um, production began on the film under the title House of Frankenstein. Universal initially intended for George Wagner to produce the film, but after the climax... Wagner moved on to direct Frisco Sal with Susanna Foster and Turhan Bay and just got out of the horror genre <laughs> for good. Bye. <laughs> he would direct a variety of other genres through the 1940s and 50s before moving on to television in the 1960s, directing episodes of The Man from Uncle, Batman, and The Green Hornet. So we have seen the last of George Wagner for this show. For this show. So Universal brought in Paul Malvern to produce. Born in 1902 in Portland, Oregon, Malvern was raised in his family's acrobatic troupe, performing with the Ringling Brothers Circus from the age of four as, quote, the greatest child acrobat in America, unquote. So he's Robin. So he's Robin, yeah. (laughs) Uh, As an adult, Malvern became a movie stuntman beginning in 1923. In 1928, he suffered serious injuries from a 70-foot fall uh, that he did for a movie and retired from stunt performing. He then became a movie producer for Monogram Pictures, making 16 John Wayne Westerns from 1933 to 1935. The success of these early John Wayne films, Malvern was able to parlay into a move to Universal, Uh, where he worked on westerns and musicals. Huh. Yeah. Working from a story outline developed by Kurt Siedmack, the film's screenplay was written by Edward T. Lowe, who had been writing feature films since 1913, when he was 33 years old. So how old is he now? Uh, Well, that would make him 64? Great. Yeah, House of Frankenstein was his 126th writing credit. Damn. Uh, I'm like, good for him, but I don't know if that bodes well for this movie. He wrote the 1923 Hunchback of Notre Dame with Lon Chaney Sr., and he also wrote The Vampire Bat back in 1933. Oh, that was Dwight Fry and Lionel Atwell. Okay. And The Sponge in a Jar. Yeah. He also wrote three Charlie Chan films, three Bulldog Drummond films, and Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon in 1942. Cool. Gets around. Yep. (laughs) Directing duties fell to Earl C. Kenton, an experienced director of feature films since 1920. We've seen him on the show before, right? Yes. He directed Island of Lost Souls in 1932, which ranks at number six on the list. And Ghost of Frankenstein in 1942, which ranks at number 58 on the list. <laughs> so it could go either way. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. So the cast here is a murderer's row of horror stars, beginning with the return of Boris Karloff to the Frankenstein franchise for the first time since 1939, albeit not as the monster. 
Instead, the 57-year-old actor would portray the staple of his time at Columbia Pictures, a mad scientist. Karloff was paid $20,000 for his appearance in this film. Is that good or bad? That's good. Yeah, okay. Lon Chaney Jr. makes his third appearance as Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman, the only Universal monster played by the same actor every time. And it's also worth saying that, um, you know, the three monsters in this are Frankenstein's monster, Count Dracula, and the Wolfman. And Lon Chaney has been been all three. three. We last saw Chaney in The Mummy's Ghost as Karis the Mummy. And in between that film and this, he starred in the third Inner Sanctum mystery movie, Dead Man's Eyes, directed by Reginald LeBorg. Chaney was paid $10,000 for his role in House of Frankenstein. Okay. Appearing as Karloff's hunchbacked assistant is J. Carol Nash, who we last saw in Jungle Woman, and who had appeared since as a Nazi spy in the movie Waterfront, starring John Carradine, and as a Japanese man in the movie Dragon Seed, starring Catherine Hepburn. Oh, and also as a Frenchman in Enter Arsene Lupin with Charles Corvin. Nash was paid $7,000 for his role. Okay. So officially, the reason that Bela Lugosi did not reprise his role as Count Dracula in this film is that he had won the role of Jonathan Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace, taking over from Boris Karloff as the play left Broadway and began its national tour. Oh my, no, oh no, Lugosi, that's (laughs) always second fiddle. However, even without the play, it is probable that Lugosi would not have been featured in this film due to the degree that his relations with Universal Studios had broken down by this point. Instead, the studio's new horror golden boy, John Carradine, won the Dracula role, and we last saw Carradine in Return of the Ape Man, and uh, he has appeared in three films since then, including the title role in Edgar G. Ulmer's Bluebeard. Carradine earned $7,000 for his appearance as Dracula. So same as Nash. Correct. Anne Gwynn reappears in this film. Uh, we first saw Chris Pine's grandmother at the age of 22 in 1940's Black Friday. Uh, she was also in the 1941 version of Black Cat and the second Inner Sanctum mystery movie, Weird Woman, in 1944. Was she the weird woman? I think so. <laughs> House of Frankenstein would be her final universal horror picture. Making a welcome appearance as yet another German police investigator is Lionel Atwell, who we last saw in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman as the town mayor. In the meantime, he had portrayed the villain in the 1944 Captain America serial for Republic Pictures, the most expensive Republic serial ever produced, and the first live-action version of a Marvel Comics character. That's cool. Um, Do you think his inspector will be anything like the version he played in Son of Frankenstein? It's not the same character, but it's probably the same archetype. Okay. Atwell earned $1,750 for his role in this movie. Then there's George Zuko, uh, appearing as a traveling showman in this film. We sort of saw Zuko in Return of the Ape Man, but really the last time we saw him was as the aging high priest in The Mummy's Ghost. He was paid $1,500 for this movie. Spanish-American actress Elena Verdugo plays a Romani girl in this film because, you know, of the Hollywood principle that non-Anglo-Saxon ethnicities are roughly interchangeable. Uh, She played a Polynesian girl named Moana in her previous movie to this, 1944's Rainbow Island. Okay. 
She was born in 1925, and she is from the Verdugo family that were among the original founders of Los Angeles. Oh, that's kind of neat. The Universal Studios lot was, in fact, on land once owned by her family. Um, yeah, that's something I didn't quite mention. Uh, the Wolfman franchise really establishes a, a connection between werewolves and Romani people. Mm-hmm. Um, and previously we've seen Maria Uspenskaya as Maliva, mm-hmm. the um, gypsy woman. Yes. Um, as we've kind of mentioned in past werewolf-related episodes, gypsy is kind of used by us to describe the particular representation and archetype of the Romani as depicted by horror movies, mm-hmm. especially Universal. Mm-hmm. So the role of the monster, that is Frankenstein's creature, in this film was taken over by Glenn Strange, cowboy villain in low-budget westerns who had been spotted by Jack Pierce in The Monster Maker. Right. Strange stood six foot five and had a naturally gaunt face, making him a perfect canvas for Jack Pierce to create his famous monster makeup upon. Also, he's young. Well... Ish? He's 45 years old here. So, like, we saw Bella Lugosi playing the creature... At, like, 65. It didn't work. And he is struggling with yes. everything that you need to have for the whole get-up. Yeah, and, there's like, so many pounds. ladies, like... Yeah, it, it's a lot. So at 45, I presume that Glenn Strange is more physically capable of handling that. Well, and as a person, also, Glenn Strange, you know, he was the tough guy and the heavy in these westerns. He was kind of a bit of a stuntman. He had had a physically active life before that. You know, he was, in general, a physically active guy, as opposed to a lot of the other actors who have played the creature, like Karloff isn't really a big guy. Uh, Karloff is kind of a thin, gaunt guy, and gaunter if he takes his um, false teeth out. But to be the creature, they had to pad his shoulders, and they had to put him in lifts to get him to be taller and broader, right? Mm -hmm. Lon Chaney is tall and broad, but he's almost a bit too thick. He's not gaunt. He doesn't look undead, right? And then, you know, Lugosi was just not a good physical match for the role at all. Um, so, you know, I could see how Jack Pierce would get really excited finding a dude who's, like, tall, strong, and gaunt. Yeah. Um, Karloff spent hours on set coaching Strange as to how to perform as the monster, um, who Strange portrayed as shambling, clumsy, and inarticulate, sort of trying to hit, like, a mix of all the versions up to this point. For sure. That's a a tough thing to try to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Strange did his own stunt work on this film and was nearly burned during the climax. The 45-year-old actor was paid $500 for his performance as the title monster. How does that compare to, like, a stunt double's uh, salary? He was probably making something close to what a stunt actor would make. I don't know. I think $500 maybe was a little bit more, but that's probably the why, you know, what the studio considered him, basically. Okay. So the film shot for 30 days, likely to accommodate the schedules of the large cast. Mm -hmm. It was released on December 15th, 1944, and did well enough at the box office for Universal to commission the follow-up movie House of Dracula. Critical reaction was mixed. The New York Times said it was like having a baseball team of nine Babe Ruths, (laughs) but also pointed out that the film sort of replaced 
chills and atmosphere with speed and uh, action. I mean, that fits with the trend of universal horror movies. Mm -hmm. Not just these creature flicks, but in general. They've been going more towards, like, this is funny. Yes. This is, like, spooky atmospheric things we saw in, like, the early 30s. Yes. Or even the scares that we see currently coming out of RKO. Yeah, and that's sort of something that critics picked up on as well. Variety thought it was a solid horror picture, but other critics felt that the film was more ludicrous than terrifying and edging towards parody, and that since all of the monsters in the film were merely rehashing their previous shticks, it was impossible for an audience member to feel shocked or scared at what they were doing. We've seen it before. Exactly. And we've seen it done better mm-hmm. before. So House of Frankenstein would be Karloff's final appearance in the Frankenstein series, and he would not work for Universal Studios again until 1949's Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff. <laughs> he kind of has to come back for that one. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm excited, but also a little apprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think... We're going to get. I mean, I think we're going to get a lot of fun, even though it's not going to be good. Okay. (laughs) How are we watching this? House of Frankenstein is available on DVD and Blu-ray as part of the Frankenstein Legacy Collection. And you can also stream it online uh, by getting it from the PlayStation Video Store, iTunes, a.k.a. Apple Movies, Google Play, and YouTube. Cool. So, folks, if you want to watch along... You can either get the collection or head to our Scream Scene YouTube playlist, which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss House of Frankenstein from 1944, directed by Earl C. Kenton. See you on the other side, everybody. everybody to scream scene we just finished watching house of frankenstein from 1944 directed by earl c kenton what'd you think sarah i mean we've both seen this movie before but what'd you think sarah (laughs) um you know i didn't remember watching this movie before but there there were parts of the movie where i was like oh yeah i know what happens here Mm -hmm. uh i quite enjoyed this i think i probably enjoyed this more than the last time we watched it, because I have more knowledge, or at the very least, more of an understanding of the other horror movies that have come before, both Mm. Universal and not. Yeah, I think when we watched this before, I mean, it was a while back. Like, I think it was five years ago, so it's been a while. Yeah. What did you think of it? Like, was it just as good? Yeah, I mean, like, the thing about this movie, and I said it before the break, like, this movie isn't good (laughs) in one sense of the word. Like, it's not... I don't think it's maybe 100% what you want when you hear that there's going to be a movie that has, like, all of these different monsters in it. I would agree with that. But it is a lot of fun, and it does deliver, and it doesn't commit the cardinal sin of being boring. Like, it keeps things moving. Yeah, those are all things I would agree with. Uh, So how about you tell us, 
invite us into the house of Frankenstein and tell us what it's all about. Right. The thing about this movie is it has a kind of anthology film feel in a weird way. Yeah. Just linked by some central characters. In essence, what this movie is, is a speed run of Dracula, the Wolfman, and Frankenstein in that order at about half hour each. That's basically what you're getting here. So we start at Neustadt Prison in Germany, and it's sometime after the last movie, several years, who knows when that is, but Boris Karloff is Dr. Gustav Niemann, and he... Niemann. (laughs) (laughs) And he was locked up in Neustadt Prison... 15 years ago, uh, he had lived in Viseria, where one of the doctors, Frankenstein, lived. The one played by Cedric Hardwick. I don't remember which one. Ludwig. Ludwig Frankenstein practiced in Viseria. Anyways, 15 years ago, Niemann dug up a bunch of dead bodies to experiment on and got found out and got run out of town and has been in prison for 15 years. And there's an interesting bit of backstory here where I guess he learned his practice from, like, some knowledge from the original Dr. Frankenstein, Henry Frankenstein. Because as Niemann puts it, his brother was Frankenstein's assistant, which implies that Niemann's brother was Fritz? Yeah. Which is wild. So Niemann has a cellmate, uh, a hunchback named Daniel, played by J. Carol Nash. And Niemann's whole cell is covered in math equations because he's trying to figure out like how to take brains from one thing and put it in another thing. He was arrested for the crime of like putting, trying to put a dude's brain in a dog's body. Like this is all (laughs) Neiman cares about is, is brain transfers. Um, a bolt of lightning hits the prison and blasts out the wall and allows Neiman and Daniel to escape. And they come across a traveling showman by the name of Lampini played by George Zuko. And Lampini's, like, got this, you know, kind of like, step right up, step right up, see the wonders of the world kind of show. And the centerpiece of his show is he has somehow managed to get the actual skeleton of Count Dracula, stake still in the heart, uh, you know... Right from the Carpathian Mountains. Right, from, like, the, the basement of Castle Dracula in... And so I, he just, like, went in there and got it. Um... <laughs> That's called robbery. Yes. Grave robbing, as it were. <laughs> um, he picks up Neiman and Daniel and uh, gives them a, a ride. And Neiman is asking him, like, hey, are you going to go to, you know, Regalberg? He's like, no. Are you going to go to, you know, Viseria? No. Are you going to go to all these places that I need to go to? And Lampini's like, no. So Neiman's like, well, you are now. And Daniel, he has Daniel kill Lampini, and that's it for George Zuko. He just had to be in a scene. Mm-hmm. So I feel a little better about how little he was paid. Right. And now, Niemann is the traveling Lampini, uh, <laughs> and Daniel is his assistant, and they are going to go around all the towns where all of the people Neiman blames for his 15 years in prison are to get his revenge. So this is a very typical... Karloff role, the mad scientist out for the revenge against those who wronged him in the past, right? 
So the first town they go to is called Regalburg. And in Regalburg, we find Burgermeister Hussmann, his grandson, and his grandson's wife, Rita, who is played by Anne Gwynn. And Rita's American, and everyone else is German, and I don't know what year it is, so this is all very <laughs> strange. But uh, Hussmann, when he was Burgermeister of Viseria, was sort of responsible for sending Neiman off to prison. So Neiman has a brilliant plan, which is to take the stake out of Dracula's heart. Listen, that, that happened accidentally. Sure. He took the stake out to just go straight attack the guy. Dracula came back and he's like, shit, quick thinking, hey, let's make a deal. Yeah, so Dracula, like, reconstitutes his form once the stake is out of him, which, I mean, listen, you didn't behead him after you staked him, like these people. Anyways. <laughs> it's like they don't know how to get rid of vampires. Exactly. So his body comes back and his clothing <laughs> and he's now John Carradine and has a mustache and no discernible accent. <laughs> and uh, Neiman makes the deal with Dracula. Okay, I will, like, protect your coffin and, like, the earth that you're buried in and make sure you always have, like, a safe place to return to, you know, at sunrise and, like, make sure no one fucks with your stuff. All you have to do is kill some folk for me. And Dracula's like, deal. So Dracula introduces himself to Herr Hussmann and his grandson and granddaughter-in-law uh, as Baron Latos. And uh, they have, like, a, a friendly social evening over a bottle of wine. And after Herr Hussmann falls asleep and young Hussmann has gone down to the wine cellar to get some more wine, Dracula puts the moves on Rita uh, <laughs> with his House of Dracula signet ring, in which... Rita can see visions of limbo, the metaphysical state between heaven and hell, life and death, in which Dracula has been trapped while the stake has been in his heart, which is wild. Yeah. And uh, she becomes obsessed with this idea of, like, the experience of being alive and yet dead, or dead and yet alive, or whatever it is that she says. And Dracula kind of puts the, the whammy on her and lures her out into the night, uh, but not before... Definitely sucking all of Herr Hussmann's blood and killing that dude uh, for the sake of Dr. Niemann. As a bat. Mm-hmm. Dracula takes Rita to his coach and off into the night. And uh, Hussmann Jr. calls up the police to... It's supposed uh, to be like Hussmann Jr. Jr.? Right, he's the grandson, yeah. Uh, calls the police for aid. And so Inspector Arns, played by Lionel Atwell, shows up on horseback and they rush off after Dracula's carriage in this, like, horse chase. Um, meanwhile, Neiman and Daniel see the police and Dracula in a coach with a young <laughs> lady coming at them, and they're like, shit, better go! And they get up their horses, and now we've got, like, sort of this, like, wagon train horse chase going. And 
Neiman figures like, wait, maybe they're not chasing us. Maybe they're chasing Dracula. Okay, how do we get rid of Dracula? <laughs> kind of like get him to like go off the path so the police follow him and not us. So they take the coffin that Neiman had uh, promised to protect and just chuck it out the back, <laughs> like down a hill. And Dracula turns his carriage to go after the coffin and his carriage crashes. And Dracula goes over to the coffin just as the sun rises and turns him into a skeleton again, and his hold over Rita is broken, and uh, it's a happy ending for everyone in that part of the story, which is now finished. <laughs> it's fun. I like it a lot. It's it's just if you wanted all of the first Dracula movie in half an hour. And without David Manners. Right. <laughs> so better. Neiman and Daniel's traveling show, which is now minus its main attraction, <laughs> pull into the village of Frankenstein, where Neiman is hoping to find the last records of Dr. Frankenstein in the ruins of Castle Frankenstein, uh, so that he can mm, switch some brains around like he wants well, to. He's promised Daniel he's going to take his brain out of his hunchback body and put his brain in like a strong, strapping young. Gaston type of body. Yeah, Daniel has some uh, body image issues, what with being a hunchback in a movie from the 1940s. Yeah. So they stop in the village of Frankenstein, where a caravan of Roma are, you know, doing Romani stuff, and um, some police show up from the village of Frankenstein, and they're like, hey, we don't want you around here. There's been all kinds of thievery in town. Get, get out. Get out of town. And then they come over to Neiman and um, Daniel, and they're like, you you too, you get out of town. And Neiman's like, but I'm merely a traveling purveyor of horrors. And the cops are like, yeah, this is the village of Frankenstein, motherfucker. We don't need no horrors here. You, you get the fuck out of here. Um, don't make me get the newspaper and whack you on the right, nose. Right, exactly. The, uh, among the Roma here is a young girl named... Alanka, who is played by Elena Verdugo, and she, uh... There were several times where I thought they were saying Ananka. Yeah. Like, from the mummy. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so she is this dancing girl, and so because she is a Romney dancing girl, and Daniel is a hunchback, of course, Daniel falls for her. Uh, because that's just, that's just movie math. Yeah. Um... Well, yeah, everyone lumps in Hunchback of Notre Dame as, like, a horror movie, so mm -hmm. I see, like, I get why they're doing that. Yes. Also, Edward T. Lowe, who wrote the screenplay of this, did write Hunchback of Notre Dame with Lon Chaney. So he's very familiar with what's going on. Right. So there's a Rome here who is responsible for all the um, thefts from the village of Frankenstein. And um, Elonka knows this, and she's calling him out on it. So he gets all pissed off and starts whipping her. And Daniel comes to the rescue and beats this dude up. And then they just kidnap Elonka? Daniel and Nimon, that is. Uh, Daniel's like, oh, she's hurt. We have to take her with us. Which, okay, Daniel. <laughs> so she wakes up, and like her people and her family and everyone she's ever known are long gone and she's in a carriage with a bunch of dudes headed to the village of Viseria but she's surprisingly cool with it uh, and Daniel's like hey you know I drive the carriage 
maybe you can chill up here and keep me company. And she's like, yeah, that sounds great. And they seem to be getting along fine until she notices he's a hunchback and she does a really bad job of pretending she doesn't notice. Niemann and Daniel pay a visit to the ruins of Castle Frankenstein, which surprisingly still has like a few stones still standing after they destroyed the dam and the dam washed away the castle. Which Um, they explicitly tie in. Yes. It's not just... A retcon. Like, yeah. the police officers are like, you see that dam? You see that castle? Here's what happened. So, the explanation we get here is that the river from the dam washed away the castle and everything else into an underground glacial cave. Which, again, where are we? What year is it? I don't know. Listen, anything can happen if you don't specify when or where it is. Yes, fair. (laughs) So, uh, Niemann and Daniel, in their search for the records of Frankenstein, discover the Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman, just frozen solid in blocks of ice. Oh, yeah. And Niemann decides that he will thaw them, and they'll help him find the records. Listen, I get it. I don't I don't want to be searching through all this muck. These guys probably know where it is. So they thaw out the wolfman first. And once he's thawed, he transforms from werewolf form to man form. And poor old Larry Talbot is like, where am I? What's going on? Why aren't I dead? I just want to be dead. Can you please just kill me? Please. And Neiman is apparently very familiar with the Wolfman's history because he recites the plot of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman back to him and then says, I am also a scientist and I can help alleviate your curse if you help me find Frankenstein's records. And uh, since, you know, the Frankenstein monster helped Talbot find Frankenstein's records in the last movie, I guess Talbot is well equipped to do this. So they find Frankenstein's records and then they uh, head off to Viseria in the carriage because that's where Nimon's equipment is. Because uh, obviously there's nothing they can use here at Castle Frankenstein. They also take the Frankenstein monster <laughs> with them and continue to dethaw him. Uh, which, okay. Yeah, but because Daniel's stuck in the back helping dethaw the creature... Larry gets to sit up front with the girl. Yes, and she quickly falls in love with him because he is a... so tragic. Yes, exactly. A tragic, dark figure. And Daniel, of course, is quite jealous of this. And so you can see that there's some, there's some tensions rising here. Yeah. They make it to Viseria and find that all they need to do to get Niemann's old equipment working is basically dust it all off. And uh, Niemann and Daniel capture uh, Strauss and... I think his name is Hertz. Two dudes from the village who are also responsible for having sent Neiman uh, to prison. One of them, like, testified that he saw Neiman take the, like, bodies from the graveyard. And the other one is Neiman's old assistant who testified against him so that, like, he would get, like, a reduced sentence, you know? Like, he made a plea bargain. Yeah. So these are the last two guys that he right. has to get revenge against. Yes. We're kind of back into, like, the through-line plot. Yes. So he and Daniel kidnap these guys. And the plan is (laughs) that they're going to take, so Neiman's going to take his old assistant's brain out of his body, and he's going to put the monster's brain in that dude's body. I don't know what's going to happen to that dude's brain, 
the other guy, Strauss, who testified against him, they're going to take Larry Talbot's brain and put it in that dude's body. Now, this is where things get a little weird, because Talbot wants a cure for lycanthropy. And apparently, the way Neiman's going to do that is by removing Talbot's brain and putting it into someone else's body. Now, you would think, aha, so Talbot will wake up in this new body and not have lycanthropy anymore. No. Apparently, it's the brain that has the curse on it, because that's part of the revenge against Strauss, is now he'll be the wolfman with Larry Talbot's brain. So really, it's just Larry <laughs> Talbot's still a werewolf. He's just in some other dude's body. Now, we were trying to think of why the brain would be the thing that has the lycanthropy, but then Sarah remembered that lycanthropy is a psychological disorder. So clearly, the curse is on the brain. Right. Which means that he's only curing Larry Talbot's body. Yeah. Into which he is putting... The monster's brain. Or no, or is it one of the... The the creature's brain is going in the wolfman because Daniel wants to be put in the wolfman and gets mad at the creature when he can't. Right. So the creature's brain is going to go into... Larry. Larry Talbot's body. Yeah. I don't remember whose brain is supposed to be going into the creature's body. Maybe it's the other dude who's going to get the creature's brain. (laughs) But anyways, it's like this whole chain that that, that Nemon has constructed. And yet the only person who's not accounted for in this chain is Daniel. The dude who's been helping Nemon this entire time and who's been like, put my brain in another body so I'm not a hunchback. So Nemon's kind of fucked up there. He's also fucked up in that he keeps telling Talbot, like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, because Niemann has gotten distracted doing experiments on the Frankenstein monster. And Talbot's like, no, you idiot. I turn into a werewolf at the full moon. Like, there is a hard deadline for when, how long I can wait here. And Niemann's like, yeah, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, so Talbot turns into the wolfman, kills some people in town, and the villagers of Assyria, like, see this dead body. <laughs> and rather than think, oh, a wolf, but there hasn't been a wolf in these parts in years. They take one look at the body and they go, fuck, we got a werewolf, and they assemble an angry mob of torches, because, listen, man, this is not their first rodeo. So... (laughs) This is how you can tell that this guy, that the writer also wrote Vampire Bat. Because those guys are like, vampire! This guy. So, Ilanka, who has fallen in love with Larry, finds out that he is the wolfman. They recite the poem back to each other, uh, you know, so she knows he's the wolfman, he knows she knows that he's the wolfman, and uh, they decide that, you know, the only thing that's going to kill him and end his suffering is he needs to be shot by a silver bullet, fired by someone who loves him, and, like, is, like, willing to do the deed. So (laughs) she melts down some of her, like, jewelry into a silver bullet. Now, this addition of has to be killed by someone who loves him, Right, is a new addition to this myth. Right. It isn't inconsistent, though, because his dad kills him in the first one. Correct, yes. Now, she melts down this silver bullet, gets a, like, derringer from somewhere, and... Just uh, found it in the castle. Right. And she is going to kill Larry Talbot. Larry goes to Nemon, and he's like, Dude, it's the second day of the full moon. Like, do the operation. Fix me up. And Neiman's like, no, 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 just wait, just wait. And he's like, I can't wait any longer, man. And he kind of gets all angry, and he's going to kill Neiman. And Neiman's like, hey, if you kill me, then nobody's going to fix your problem. And Talbot's like, fuck, fine. So he goes off to his room. And Neiman gets everything ready for the, like, multi-brain transplant. Uh, And Neiman's 
either an idiot or doesn't have a clock or whatever, because he tells Daniel, like, oh, yeah, tell Talbot we're ready just as the sun goes down and the moon comes out. So, like, good job, Neman. So <laughs> Daniel goes to find Talbot just as he has turned into the Wolfman and attacked Alonka and just gored her, and she shoots him, and he dies tragically, and she dies tragically. And Daniel picks up her body and brings her back to Neman, and he's like, mother fucker, I told you, fix me so I can have this girlfriend, and now she's dead, and the wolfman's dead, and everybody's fucked, yeah, you fucked up the whole thing. And Neiman's like, yeah, you know, shit happens. And <laughs> Daniel's like, I am fucking done with you. So he chokes Neiman to death. Then the Frankenstein monster wakes up finally, smashes through the bonds, uh, attaching him to the, uh, you know, laboratory table, and goes over to Daniel and chucks him out a window. <laughs> oh, you forgot one thing. Mm. The crazy mob has been looking for the wolfman. They see the crazy lights going on over at the Neiman place. Yeah, because Neiman's got a whole bunch of Strickfaden equipment going off for his experiments. And they get... Like, the whole mob arrives to the old place right as Daniel gets thrown out the window. Yes, and the mob's like, aha, Dr. Neiman's up to his old tricks. We gotta get him. The monster goes over to Neiman, who's, like, just barely still alive. Not quite dead yet. And picks him up. So we have Boris Karloff being carried by his most famous character, which is a weird (laughs) thing. Just fun. And the monster, who is, you know, just blind and dumb and has no real idea where he is or what's going on or where to go or what to do, just sees this angry mob and, you know, those monster instincts kick in, gotta get away from the angry, torch-wielding mob, and he heads out into the swamp like he's Karis at the end of The Mummy's (laughs) Ghost. And uh, the angry, torch-wielding mob is like, oh, cool, dope, and they just throw their torches into the swamp and light the whole thing on fire, and the monster heads deeper into the bog to get away from the flames and Neiman wakes up and he's like, no, don't, don't go into the bog. Like, no, stop it. And the monster just doesn't hear him or whatever and just walks into the swamp and they both drown. In quicksand. The end. Everybody dies. (laughs) Yeah, this movie is quite a lot of fun. Yes. Um, You hit the nail on the head when you described it as basically like an anthology movie versus yeah. a crossover. Yeah. Because um, it, it, it is basically like three separate movies crammed into one. Yeah, like the weirdest part of the movie is that none of the monsters actually meet, at least like actively. Like when Talbot's alive, the Frankenstein monster is unconscious, right? So there's no real meetup there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's literally you have the Dracula section, the Wolfman section, and then the Frankenstein monster section, and they're completely separate. Yeah. So if you were hoping for, like, I don't know, some kind of, like, love triangle between the three creatures, like, no, sorry. It's weird, because we've seen Frankenstein and the Wolfman meet and fight each other in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So, like, I get that that's kind of already been done, but, like, what's strange is that the Dracula section is kept so separate from the other two monsters, because, like, that's the thing we haven't seen yet, is, like... Frankenstein and Dracula. Because, like, if Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman are the big three, Frankenstein and Dracula are the big two, you know? Now, speaking of Dracula, I think Carradine as Dracula is quite fun. Um, I had a lot of fun. He tries to do the uh, hypnosis eyes, and he's just fucking staring. He's just bug-eyed. Oh, and it's so funny. I don't think it's supposed to be, but it is 
quite fun. Um, but yeah. there's, there's three things here with Carradine. Mm. One, the stuff we see is, is with, with Dracula is kind of stuff we've already seen before, except for maybe this ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, it's kind of a small detail. I would guess that the Dracula section is probably 20 minutes or less. Yeah, it's, it's just a little over 20 minutes. It's 21. Which means that there's not enough time to bite into the roll. Yeah. B- bite into the roll? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And three, this, something, this is something that is kind of fun, kind of interesting. So Zuko says that I found this coffin and this body in the Carpathian Mountains. Right. Where did Dracula die? Definitely in London. Yeah. So either... Um, this is another vampire that was maybe part of Dracula's brood, another son of Dracula, right. sure. if you will, because the ring is uh, does have Dracula's crest mm-hmm. on it, or this was another vampire who was just um, squatting right. at the castle, <laughs> then got staked and taken on the spot. Okay, possibility three. So the vampire is staked, and we know that Dracula was staked, and there's just a skeleton, which is kind of consistent with the fact that his body got burned in Dracula's Daughter. In Dracula's Daughter, after doing that in Britain, Maria Zaleska heads back to Castle Dracula. The climax of that movie happens in Transylvania. So maybe she took her dad's body back with her? I I don't know. She burns that body like first thing. It's no, like the first for five sure. minutes. I'm just... I don't think she'd be lugging around like unless she has like a backpack that is as deep as links, where you know you just have a whole shit ton of equipment in there. I don't think she's lugging around this old skeleton. I'm just saying that's the other possibility. <laughs> that, fair enough. That's fair. So you bring up something about how like everything we see Dracula do, something we've seen him do before. Honestly, every single plot element in this movie is something we've seen before. There's not an original bone in this movie's body. Um, But the speed with which the plot flies by kind of ensures that there's this efficient script Mm -hmm. that doesn't waste time and doesn't keep us waiting for what we came here to see. I think the movie's greatest strength is its speed, because we aren't left waiting, and because the variety of the elements being used, it ends up feeling like we're revisiting old favorites rather than rehashing tired tropes. I would agree. Um, The pacing is really well done. It keeps it going along so I'm not feeling bored. Mm -hmm. And I think the pacing is really helped by the music. Yeah. um, Kind of combining our familiar stings in new ways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's not... Like, the last several Universal movies have used the same, like, library music over and over again, right? And so there are these certain themes that are very familiar. But this clearly isn't library music, but it's the same themes. They've taken these themes from the older movies and mixed them up in a new way, which is a neat musical representation of the movie itself. Yeah, um, and I think the pacing is also helped by the several long takes mm-hmm. that we get here. So, um, a listener isn't familiar, a long take is just, like, a long time between a cut. Yeah. Um, and when we have these long takes, there's a lot of moving camera. For example, when Neiman first gets to Castle Frankenstein and they're searching through, like, we have this long take of them 
like looking around, going down, Daniel falls through like a, a cavern and like the camera just keeps moving and following them. So they're doing some interesting camera work that like even if you aren't aware of like the particular techniques, it's doing something that is visually interesting. Yes. Um the 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 keeping the camera moving is the thing that makes the long takes make it feel like the movie is still moving when if it was a stationary camera that would kill the pacing dead to have such long takes. Definitely. And I give, you know, director Earl C. Kenton and cinematographer George Robinson a lot of um, credit for keeping the camera moving, giving us plenty of dark shadows and spooky, you know, visuals and Dutch angle framing so that your visual interest stays high throughout the running time. Um, I think this is probably the best a Universal Monster movie has looked since, like, Son of Dracula, maybe? Yeah, which makes me wonder if those reviews you quoted saying that this didn't have any atmosphere were meaning atmosphere as in, like, a slow dread? Yes. Rather than, like, using lighting to craft an atmosphere. Like, literally creating, like, dark shadows. Yeah, I think this movie does a good job of maintaining, like, a visual consistency with the previous Dracula, Wolfman, and Frankenstein movies. Mm -hmm. I also want to kind of go back to something you said where there are just a ton of tropes in here. Yes. Kind of, like, tropes galore. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Of course, agree. There's no way to like disagree. Um, but I think what also works here and why it doesn't feel tired is because I feel like the film knows why it's using these tropes rather than just throwing them in. Yeah, absolutely. It understands. That's why. That's how it's able to put the tropes together. Not necessarily in like an interesting way, but just in a way that like makes sense every step of the way. Right? Like, there's never a moment where you're like, wait why is this happening? And the only answer you can think of is, oh, because it's a trope. Like, everything is still motivated. The structure of the story is still there. It's not just a bunch of, you know, elements haphazardly put together. Um, So even though everything in this movie is taken from somewhere else, the way they fit together still works. And I think Nash is a great example of this, as, like, the Mm -hmm. pseudo-Quasimodo. Because all of his actions, I felt, were believably motivated. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just, oh, now I fall in love with a girl, and oh, now I fight this guy. Like, it it all was believable. We've kind of mentioned how this is, like, three separate stories. Yeah. And I feel like the Wolfman story, I really like its addition to the Wolfman franchise. Mm -hmm. Because at the end, like, we see Chaney, or let me... We see the Wolfman get shot with the silver bullet, and then he turns back into Larry Talbot, and he's lying dead, um, and he has, like, a slight smile on his face. Right. And I think that's just, like, such a nice ending for him. Obviously, it's not going to keep. Yeah. Because Universal has to keep making money. Yeah. But I I just like this ending for him. Yeah, I think... um... You know, if we go down sort of all the major players in the Mm -hmm. movie... Mm -hmm. um, Karloff, I think, is very typically good as Niemann, um, because he's played this role before. It's the mad scientist who's out for revenge against the people who sent him to prison. Like, he's done this a lot of times. And so, I think Karloff's good as Niemann. He's not doing anything, though, like, new or special or interesting or different, but he's also not doing anything bad. You know what I mean? 
this script and mm-hmm. this movie has some wild lines of dialogue, and Karloff says them beautifully. Right. Yeah. He knows how he like. I feel I forget if he is, but I feel like he's Shakespearean trained. The way that just like. We see Shatner and Patrick Stewart uh, deliver these lines of like techno babble, mm-hmm. believably. Karloff is able to like say these ridiculous lines, believably. Well, and he's also been like of the people in this cast, he's been doing this longer than any of them. That is right? fair. Yeah, he is. He is you know familiar with w- how this genre works and what it should sound like, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, though, overall, Cheney's the MVP of the cast mm-hmm. for me. Um, he seems to be the one who's actually really taking this seriously, like, as the next chapter of the life of Lawrence Talbot. And he just rings every bit of pathos that he can out of the role, like, from the moment he wakes up and he's just like, no, why am I alive again? To, like, the final, you know, moments where he finally gets to be dead, right? Like... He he seems to be giving it his all in a way that he doesn't have to be. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Nash's Daniel is pretty standard, uh, but competent. You know, again, I don't think there's anything really revolutionary being done here, but it's not, he's not doing anything wrong either. Um, I have this suspicion, like, so he's doing what he's supposed to, which is elicit sympathy. I have this suspicion that Nash's voice, his kind of like, high-pitched, nasally, whiny kind of voice is the voice that people think of when they think of hunchback assistants. Like, there's this pop culture version of the hunchback lab assistant Mm -hmm. in people's heads that's like, "Mm, yes, master, and then, like, has Nash's voice, it has Igor's name, because people are, oh, yeah, Igor, that's that character's name, and then it has Fritz's appearance, Right? Like, those are the three elements of the pop culture version of that character. But you never actually get those, like, all together in one thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. So you were talking earlier about enjoying Carradine as Dracula. I found him a little bit of a disappointment. But I agree with you that a lot of that is probably because he honestly doesn't have enough screen time to really do anything. Yeah. He's doing the best he can in, like, limited space, but he didn't wow me like I would have wanted. He has the acting chops to really charm you as Dracula. And the film just was not able to give time for that. Because the thing about Dracula, like 31 Dracula, is you have these, like, slow, methodical moments where you are with Dracula, and part of it is the way that the film is made, kind of, it's shot proscenium style, Um, but there's just moments where Lugosi just exudes the charm and the menace. Yeah, the slower pace works for Dracula, and it works against, the faster pace of this movie works against him. And, And we know Carradine can do that kind of, charming menace, because that's why we liked Captive Wild Woman so much. Yeah, I think... I mean, he's fine. He's yeah, fine yeah. with Dracula, but it's not... He's getting undersold, I think. Um, similarly, Glenn Strange is fine as the monster. He's unconscious for most of the movie, and only becomes active in the last few minutes, which has kind of become the monster's shtick for the last few movies. Um, For the brief time he is awake, he's serviceable, but he gets no real opportunity to actually show any of the depth that Karloff or even Chaney 
got to because he basically just wakes up, tosses Daniel out a window, and then drags Carl off into the mud. Yeah. And that's it. That's all he gets to do. So he gets to kind of go, Rawr! and he gets to kind of react to getting torches put in his face a little bit. But that's about it. He has a good look. He's fine. Physically, he seems to really be able to do it. Like, he has Karloff off the ground, or whoever is playing Karloff in those <laughs> scenes where they're going through fire. Like, he has that person off the ground. He has the strength to do it. So I am a little disappointed that we didn't get to see more of him. Atwill and Zuko's appearances are so small they might as well be kind of non-entities. Like, they're basically cameos for people in the audience who would be like us, who'd be able to be like, oh shit, Lionel Atwell, or oh, hey, that's George Zuko, but that's about it, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I thought Anne Gwyn was fine in her small part. Oh, again, she's a great example of crazy dialogue. The ridiculous <laughs> dialogue that is in this movie. I feel like if the Dracula section of this movie could be drawn out to something a little bit longer. There is something vaguely interesting about her character, who is this girl who, like, loves horror stuff. Like, she's the one who takes her husband and her grandfather to this, like, horror-traveling show, and she's into, like, ghouls and ghosts and spookums. You know, then she gets seduced by vampirism, right? And she seems to be, like, an easy target for Dracula because she probably shops at, like, you know, 1940s Germany, hot topic anyways. Um, <laughs> but the that section of the movie is so fast, it's over so quickly that you don't really get any depth out of that at all. It's sort of an idea that's just sort of there, but isn't explored. Yeah. Elena Verdugo gets to be either pleasant and innocent in, like, this way that kind of reminded me of Snow White. Sure. Um, or uh, sort of a little bit tragic once she resolves to be the one who's going to shoot Talbot. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, Asta doesn't really get a lot to do because she is playing these two specific roles mm -hmm. um, in terms of, like, what the plot needs her to do. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, like, her stuff does feel believable. It's not like she's just randomly being moved around like a piece on a chessboard. Yeah, everyone in this movie is fine for what they are. Like, nobody's doing a bad job. Everything about this film, you know, is being made at a certain standard of quality. It's just, this movie is like an hour and a half long, if that, and has no time for, like, really giving anything any depth. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a greatest hits collection, right? It reminds me of, uh... When you get, like, a, a sampler of, like, desserts at a restaurant. Right, sure, sure, and, sure. And, like, each of them are, like, mini versions of, like, the full desserts. And those full things are probably, like, really good, but you can't have all of them. So you get, like, this sampler, and it just kind of satisfies you a little bit. Yeah, it's weird. Like, this is the, what did you say, like, 10th movie overall? Yeah. And yet, in some ways, this is, like... The quintessential? Well, not quite essential, but I would say it, like, it could work as an introductory movie because you learn everything you will ever need to learn about any of these people in this movie. Like, this is kind of everything you need to know about these monsters and how they do. I will say, um, and this kind of goes back to the pacing, they have to introduce some things in here, like Dracula's backstory, Wolfman's story, Creature's backstory, mm -hmm. um, in order to kind of bring you up to speed. And they do it, like, quickly 
well clearly slowly slowing you down clearly yeah they and they while telling really well and while having to tell the story of Neiman and Daniel who have their own convoluted backstory that isn't actually from a previous movie and yeah they do it they do it well you're you're absolutely right there's nothing here where you're like wait what mm-hmm. what is going on there's none of the like problems that you had with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman where they like cut out a bunch of Lugosi stuff so parts of the story don't make sense anymore. Yeah, I think they definitely learned from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Especially with like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman has the problem of like making you wait for things to happen. Yeah. I think that there's nothing really special about House of Frankenstein, but it's a fun romp. It doesn't overstay its welcome. And it does well by all of its characters. It's not impugning the memory of any of these individual franchises. Um, And I think in a world before home video, this kind of greatest hits sequel makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, And I think as fans of these kinds of movies, we enjoy seeing the old tropes getting pulled out again. We enjoy sort of, you know, going, oh yeah, here's the part where this happens. Yeah, um, there's something special about, like, even, like, the cameo that Zuko and At will have. Like, it's, it's enough, and you're kind of like, hey! And it, it, yeah, it's like you said, it's, it's fun. Um, I think this is also a really good example of how universal it has kind of become horror for children. Yes, yeah, this is a good horror movie to show a child. And I, I just want to, like, point out, like, we describe Curse of the Cat People as horror for children. But um, I, it's kind of interesting to think of Curse of the Cat People and House of Frankenstein as two ends of a spectrum of mm. horror for children, where Curse of the Cat People deals with themes that could help children process grief and other like difficult emotions, whereas House of Frankenstein is just pure entertainment, and is a great film to use to introduce kids to horror tropes. Yeah, I think the difference is that Curse of the Cat People is a way to bring kids to horror, mm-hmm. right? Whereas House of Frankenstein brings kids to monsters, right? Sure. It's it's an introduction to these monsters, and it's more of like about the thrills, whereas Curse of the Cat People is more about the chills. Yeah. Um, I think if there's one low point of House of Frankenstein that you can hold against it, it's the fact that none of the monsters ever really interact with each other. That's the thing that's missing. I will say, though, that House of Frankenstein walked so that future Avengers-type movies (laughs) could run. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is kind of a a stepping stone from a true anthology movie like Eerie Tales, to a movie that actually has a crossover with multiple characters. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Universal monster movies are the first cinematic universe, and they do this, and then really where that idea gets, I think, brought to greater fruition is with Toho and their kaiju movies in the 60s. Yeah, which would kind of fit, given, like, how long it might have taken, like, a movie like this has Frankenstein to get to Japan mm-hmm. and maybe instill the idea of a, a movie like this. Yeah, and then you have, you know, obviously the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe today. Yeah. So where would you like to rank this? Well, Sarah, I have a specific spot oh, that I've I have a, picked. I have a little bit of a range. Okay. So maybe I'll go first? Sure. 
when looking at the list, I was a little lost. Okay. So I decided, well, let's look at where the past Dracula, Frankenstein, and Wolfman movies have been. Right. So the lowest of those movies is Ghost of Frankenstein at 58, and I felt this was better. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's Dracula's Daughter at 53, and again, I felt House of Frankenstein is better. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you get to 36 with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And it's interesting to compare these two because Frankenstein meets the Wolfman actually has the two interact, whereas this film, they don't really. But with all the reasons that we've already previously stated, House of Frankenstein is ironically more cohesive and works. Um, So I felt that House of Frankenstein was better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at 36. Yeah, I would would agree with that. I mean... If there's a problem with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, it's that you are left waiting the entire length of the movie for the Wolfman-Frankenstein fight. And then it's the last five minutes of the movie, and then the movie's over, right? Yeah, for sure. The next film up is Son of Dracula at 30. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought to myself that, you know, Son of Dracula is kind of doing the Dracula shtick again. Only they're mixing it up uh, with the Southern American Gothic thing, um, having this mortal manipulate Alucard. So I felt like Son of Dracula was remixing things enough to make it original, whereas this House of Frankenstein is just a greatest hits. Yeah, we're back in Eastern Europe with the standard tropes and the standard visuals. Um, It's not really a reimagining in the way that Son of Dracula is. Yeah, so my range is 30 to 36, and in there is, going down, uh, Freaks, The Devil Commands, The Men They Could Not Hang, The 1926 Dune of Prague, The Black Room, and then Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Cool. And I was kind of, yeah, I was kind of stuck in here, and I wasn't really sure where to go from there. Well, my spot that I picked out is in your range. Oh, sweet. Um, when I was trying to find a spot for this on the list, I, I thought about Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, because it's the previous... Monster team-up movie, right? Yeah. And for all the reasons we've already discussed, I was like, okay, this is better. And then right above that was The Black Room, and I was like, but The Black Room's better than this, because it's an actual, like, good movie with an original story, and, like, good performances, and, like, this, like, clockwork plot, Mm -hmm. and, like, atmosphere, and dread, and menace. Like, as we've kind of said, this movie's almost like Saturday morning cartoons, and The Black Room isn't that. Uh, so I kind of just said, cool, let's put it between Black Room and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and that's where I ended up. Yeah, I think that's a really good spot, actually. Um, even just looking at Karloff's performance, yeah. performances in the Black Room, yeah. um, to this movie, um, yeah, I would agree. So, yeah, let's put it there. So entering the list at number 36, House of Frankenstein from 1944, directed by Earl C. Kenton. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screenscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the past nine movies I've been mentioning all throughout the episode. Uh, You can find them all listed there, um, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, if you have a suggestion, um, a comment, hey, you missed this film, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed on your podcatching app of choice. 
If that app allows you to leave a rating or a review, we'd very much appreciate it. It helps the show out a bunch, as does mentioning the show to a friend, whether that's on social media or in real life. You can also <laughs> help the show out by going to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the 5 and $10 levels get access to bonus audio and monthly horror writing that I do that's exclusive to our Patreon. That could be short stories or reviews or essays. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will start doing a bonus fifth episode every month looking at horror-adjacent movies, stuff like Van Helsing, directed by Stephen Sondheim and starring Hugh Jackman, which is definitely a monster rally movie because it's got Dracula and the Wolfman and uh, Frankenstein and I think... Harpies? Yeah, those are Dracula. It's Dracula's wives. Um, And I think there's also like a pre-credits Bond sequence where he's fighting like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or something like that. I don't remember. (laughs) But um, it's definitely not a horror movie. It's an action movie, right? So it fits into that kind of category nicely and neatly. Um, So if you want to hear our opinions on Van Helsing, uh, head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and make a donation. Uh, Start uh, supporting the show monetarily. You you did kind of a uh, end of a medical commercial. I definitely there. like re- like you started laughing, so it like broke my. <laughs> I'm so sorry. My thing, but like you're you're not feeling well, so I was just trying to like get through everything as quickly as I could. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, we are sticking with Universal, and we're sticking with sequels because it's time for the second Mummy movie of the year, The Mummy's Curse from 1944. Oh boy, Lon Chaney is just getting tons of work. Hmm. Wow. It's the final Universal Mummy movie of the Karis the Mummy series. Oh, dang. Mm-hmm. So after I see this, then I can definitely write all about all of the Mummy movies and well, how they intersect. Except for you haven't seen the Hammer Horror Mummy movies of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing from the 1960s. That is true. Well... Catch us next week, Creatures of the Night, when we say goodbye to Cars the Mummy. (laughs) Bye! Bye!